You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Nicole Dunka, an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. And today I'm joined by Oakland Mayor Shang Tao, and she'll be talking about her legislative priorities, the issues facing Oakland, and her groundbreaking election as the first Hmong American to lead a major city. Thanks so much for joining us, Mayor Tao. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And so as we saw in that last video, your election was part of a wave of Hmong Americans across the country winning elected office. Can you talk a little bit about your journey into politics? Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I actually don't have a typical story as many elected officials across America. My story starts with my parents. Many Hmong had to flee our home country of Laos. And my parents were two of more than about 200,000 refugees who have left uh, Laos since 1975. And my parents, they met in a refugee camp in Thailand. Uh, and then they were actually joined here in the United States where when they met in the, Thai, uh, in the refugee camp, they were actually set together because my dad was an orphan. My mom, a single mother, a widow because her first husband died in the war. And so the community really said, why don't you both get together and go out to the new world and start a life together? And that's exactly what they did. And so when they first landed here in the United States in uh, 1979, uh, they were taken to Rhode Island where they saw snow for the first time and they thought that all of the buildings were up in ashes. Uh, they then resettled in California because Hmong people, uh, one of the skilled trades that they know how to, to, uh, how to survive off of is agricultural. And so I was uh, born in Stockton, California, and I'm one of 10 children. Um, I was rebellious as a teen. You know, it's a pretty patriarchal system, uh, the Hmong people. And uh, I left home at age 17. And a few years later, you know, I was living in, here in the Oakland Bay area where I was in my first relationship. And it was an abusive domestic relationship. And so um, when I was about six months pregnant, I realized that I didn't want to have this for my unborn child. And so I left and at 20 years old, pregnant, and just feeling that my family would never take me back. I didn't have any friends. Um, I was unhoused. And so um, my son and I, I gave birth at County Hospital alone. And um, my son, infant son and I, we were unhoused, uh, couch surfing and living in our car. And it really gave me a whole perspective that I have never forgotten about everything that I have endured my whole life, whether living on social services with my parents and having to, you know, really navigate that space for them uh, or on social services as a single mom and living in public housing. And so uh, these are the lived life experiences that I'm incredibly proud of because it's how I lead. I lead with my heart first and ensuring that those who are most on the margins, that they are uplifted. That's such a powerful story. Thanks for sharing that with us. And as a Hmong American, you are the most prominent office holder uh, in the U.S. right now. I mean, you talked a little bit about growing up, but did you see people from your community in positions of power as you were growing up in Stockton? Absolutely not. You know, for the for the longest time, even, you know, I went to community college, so I, you know, took, what, four years off, went through all of that and was in a really dark space in time. 
And when you're in that kind of a dark space where you are lacking hope, it becomes really dangerous. And so I entered community college, wanted to get in and get out, but others saw something that I mean that I didn't see myself. And it wasn't until after going to UC Berkeley, I transferred after I graduated from the community college to UC Berkeley. And um, I couldn't afford to actually pay for my son's clothes, so I took on a paid internship. And they paired me to the local council member here in the city of Oakland, the at-large council member. And it was there and then that I actually learned and realized what local government really did and why they are important. Because before that, not only did I not see any Hmong people in elected office, I actually didn't really understand what local government did. But local government is where you know, policies and rules and regulations are created and they impact families on the ground the most. And I thought it was the most absurd and bizarre thing to see electeds uh, around the table making these important decisions who didn't have the lived life experience. And so that actually started, uh, jump-started my, you know, my time here in Oakland City Hall. So I went from intern to staff, to chief of staff, to council member and now mayor. Wow, that's quite a rise. And it's really interesting hearing you talking about not really seeing Hmong Americans in positions of power when they are a pretty cohesive group, especially as voters. They've become a vital voting block in states like Minnesota. Can you talk a little bit why they are kind of this cohesive community compared to other Asian American communities and why you think that is? Absolutely. So the Hmong people, are, we're very clan based. And so we go off of our last name and that would be your clan. So I am a part of the town clan. And because we're very clan based, um, and not just that, but it goes back to our roots of not wanting to be uh, governed under the uh, Chinese government. And so a lot of our, you know, our ancestry traces back to the Yellow Basin um, a part of, uh, of China. And so Hmong people live in the jungles, right, in the jungles of Laos, China, Vietnam. But it is through that that we create our own governmental system. And so that is why here in the United States, we are, because of our clans and because we are so clan based, that we can activate a lot more simpler than other Asian Americans uh, because we are super tight knit. Uh, we always joke around, but it's kind of true that we all know each other by one or two or three degree apart. And so um, when I am running here in the city of Oakland, I have 100% support in Wisconsin, in Minnesota. And you're absolutely right. The Hmong people is a large voting block. We are voters. Our parents are voters, even though they're monolingual. Uh, my generation, we're voters too. And so uh, this is a huge, huge success for all Hmong people across the nation. And in your election, you actually beat your opponent by a couple of hundred votes. Can you talk a little bit about the Hmong community and also the coalition that you built in order to win that election? Absolutely, I think that that's the most important question, right? And it's because there's not a lot of Hmong people that live here in the city of Oakland. However, I always say that it is through the Hmong values that, actually, that I actually hold up and live by, which is you may not have much, but there are families that are living out there that have less. And so in order to actually support each other, there's this sense of community and that you must always support your community, whether through helping to feed someone else or or whatever that looks like. And so those are the values that I bring with me. And it's the values where I uplift working families first and foremost. And I am unapologetic about that. 
I believe that if we lift from the bottom up, that we are all lifted. And this is a value that can be translated across all ethnic groups, all ethnic groups. And that is why our campaign was so powerful and transformative here in the city of Oakland. Because here in the city of Oakland, we still have many families who are working families. We have families who are just trying to make it and we have multi-families in one single family house because they can't afford to, pay, uh, afford to pay rent. More so than that, they can identify with me because I am the first mayor who is also a renter as well too. And so all of these live life experiences, I do believe that because Oakland is so activated that people are paying attention and people, whether or not you are a part of the working families movement, that you can understand the simplicity of that if you lift from the bottom, that we are all lifted and that we are all better for that. And here in Oakland, it's the culture that we are trying to save. And the culture means black and brown people must remain here in the city of Oakland because that's our superpower. And as an Asian American leader, you're obviously coming to this position at a time when more people are paying attention to anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian racism. Um, Obviously, earlier this year, there were two mass shootings that killed Asian Americans. As an Asian American leader, I mean, how do you feel when you hear about these kinds of incidents and what must be done to stop these sorts of incidents? You know, with the mass shooting, it's so it's disheartening to actually continuously, I feel like every single month we're hearing this now. And at a nationwide level, we have to do, we have to obviously have more stronger common sense gun laws, right? And this, these are just common sense, meaning that if you have a record having a mental health issues, that you should not be allowed to have a gun on you. And so, uh, but in regards specifically to the API community, and seeing, you know, the vitriol that was placed upon us in regards to the past administration that used to be in Washington, D.C., that we see that as leaders, we, the words that we say, the words that come out of our mouths in regards to hatred amongst one ethnic group versus another, that we, that is incredibly important and that we cannot stand here, any leaders across the nation and allow for a situation like that to happen again. And we have to stand in solidarity and as allies to one another because we are all interconnected and we are tied together. Our success in the API community is connected to our black and brown brothers and sisters successes as well too. And so that is something that we are doing here in the city of Oakland is really uh, the interconnection. And this is why I'm such a huge advocate as well too, Nicole, uh, for the fact that we need ethnic studies. We need some deep ethnic studies starting from elementary to middle school continuously all the way to co the college uh, environment. Right now, we only see it in majority of places in the nation if you go to college. And that's just not appropriate and it's it shouldn't be the standard. And now I'd like to turn to some big news from Oakland. Last week, you made a big decision to fire the police chief. Um, and you said you wanted to instill a culture of integrity and fairness at every level. I mean, how do you go about instilling that kind of culture? Right. So the Oakland Police Department has been under federal supervision for about 20 years. And we are pretty close to coming out from under it. Uh, when we received the results of this 
independent investigation, which was completely disheartening because we, again, after 20 years, we're so close to getting out of it. And mind you, every year we pay over a million dollars to this monitor, right? And so uh, getting out of the federal oversight is incredibly important for multiple different reasons, civil rights reasons, and not just that, but our minimal resources here in the city of Oakland. Um, that report found systemic issues within the department's internal affairs division, and it was clear to me that we needed to take that seriously because this was part of the reason why we ended up in the federal oversight 20 years ago. And so, you know, it was a very difficult decision for me and because I did have a really good relationship with Chief Armstrong, but I had to put that aside and do what I believe is right. And ultimately, I no longer had confidence for him to continue to be chief of police here in the city of Oakland and to do what is needed to reform the Oakland Police Department and to and to move us out from under the federal oversight. So right now I'm focused on what we need to do next. And what we need to do next is we're going to begin the process to set up a nationwide search for our next chief and create a plan for reforming the problems identified in the independent investigative report. And that decision also caused a lot of pushback in recent days. Members of the NAACP have called for that chief to come back. I mean, how do you build trust with the community with a decision like this when there are many members of the community who say this person should be in power again? So I, my understanding, and I understand this too, again, I had a really great relationship with the chief. He's born and raised here in the city of Oakland, but we've also heard from men, a number of labor and community leaders that they understand and support my decision. I understand that some folks, uh, some folks feel differently, but in the end, our police chief must be committed to addressing these problems identified in the independent investigator report. And they must be able to work closely with the monitoring team and speak credibly before the courts. And I no longer have confidence that Chief Armstrong can fulfill those requirements because of uh, what the investigative report had found about him not being credible. And so for me, this is about the city of Oakland, the people that live here, the residents, the businesses, and not just that, but holding up to not just saying that we're checking off boxes, but that we are actually doing the real systemic work within the police department. And that is why I had to make that decision that I made. And uh, I'm excited to go out and do a nationwide search to ensure that we have a chief of police who can uphold those values and at the same time be able to speak credibly before the court and work closely with the monitoring team so that we can finally um, get out of the federal oversight. And you keep mentioning a nationwide search. Uh, does this mean that you are certainly looking for somebody who doesn't necessarily have those connections to Oakland like the previous chief did? I mean, what are you looking for in terms of trying to find someone who is able to change culture after, you know, two decades of being under this federal oversight? Well, I want to be very clear that we're opening up this search nationwide. However, I am a huge champion of hiring locally, right? And so for me, um, 
obviously we would be looking locally as well too but i wanted to just open up this application process and not actually withhold any opportunity any strong positive opportunities for others to come in to help us with making sure that we continue with the values of this reform in our department and not just that but to move us forward and so for me i believe that oakland deserves the best of the best and i know that we have great men and women in our own department and that is somewhere where i am lo looking closely as well too and so uh and of course again i'm a huge champion in hiring locally i've always have been and so that is something that we're going to be looking into obviously um and uplifting as much as we can to hire locally and one of your top priorities when you were sworn into office was addressing gun violence within the city how do you feel like you are doing that and um, what strategies are you employing besides policing to do so Absolutely. And so I always say public safety is a truly comprehensive approach. And when I say comprehensive approach, we are talking about how do we invest in the forefront instead of just responding continuously. And that means investing directly into communities across all of Oakland. That means that creating safer streets so that our kids can actually get to school and making sure that they are fed when they are there and making sure that when school is closed, that they can still have access to the basics, you know, nutritious uh, food and not just that, but access to being able to uh, get into programmings uh, for free or for uh, less expensive than what it is right now. And so for me, success in, uh, into public safety is going to be both of those factors. Because I also understand that when there is crime, that we have to have a response. And that is our police officers. That's the work that they're doing. And so I'm a huge advocate and champion of our macro program, which is a mental health response program. So it helps alleviate the caseloads for our police officers so they could do the crime fighting. And then if people are on the streets and they see someone going through a mental health crisis, they can call a different line where that will actually trigger our case managers to go out to actually, um, that don't actually, or that are not sworn officers and they'll go out and actually address the case of a mental health crisis in our city. More so than that, we need year-round paid internships for our young people. We know that the best way to, uh, to actually prevent crimes from happening is to make sure that kids are uh, tired, right, that they're kept busy, and not just that, that we put money into their pockets as well, too. And so that's something that our administration will be working on, including making sure that we are bringing back our foot police officers in our business corridors. We must ensure that people feel safe and that our businesses have a direct link to our OPD personnel. And so that is why um, last week I announced that we will be implementing our um, street business corridor police foot officers as well so they can work directly with our ambassadors who are non-sworn. And so it's a truly a comprehensive approach and I'm excited for the work and I know that uh, the community as well too. Right, and Oakland is obviously known as a fairly progressive city, and there are often calls to reduce policing, and uh, actually you have increased some of the academies. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, walking that line as a progressive politician in terms of responding to these calls for less police, but then also trying to support police when you're in office? You know, it's because of the lived life experience that I have right? I am an apologetic when I say we must invest in the forefront. But again, just, you know, about four years ago, my home was broken into, my son was home. 
and he was home alone. I was here at City Hall and they saw him, the people who broke into our home, but they just kept going. And it was completely traumatizing for my son. Even to this day, he will not stay home by himself again. And so I do understand that balance of yes, government must do better in the forefront and invest in our young people and invest in um, the public safety you know, uh, regimens and programs that we must, that we need today. But at the same time, when there are crimes, we do need a response. And that response is our police officers. And that is what they're trained for, is to respond. But how do we prevent is that we work directly with community. And so I'm a huge advocate of our ceasefire program as well too. And so ceasefire is essentially um, those who are on the ground in the community, whether it be our pastors, whether it be our community leaders, that when there is a shooting, that these are the people who work directly with our officers and with our local elected officials to ensure that they are the communicators in the community to actually bring down the violence and uh, and ask our young people in the community to put down their guns and that there are other pathways and resources. Because I want to be very clear, you only know what you know. And a lot of times our young people don't know the different pathways to success or the different pathways to resources. And I see that as our job to make sure that they are given those uh, uh, resources and pathways and that we have to tell them how to get to it. And I'd love to turn to another topic. There was a local state of emergency because of a ransomware attack. Have there been any updates on that attack or who the perpetrators were or how a city like Oakland will help prevent this in the future? Yes, uh, it was very unfortunate. And as you can see, I've had a very busy first month and a half on the job. <laughs> um, but our great team, we have such terrific wor uh, city workers here in the city of Oakland uh, that they're working around the clock. And I know that it's been incredibly frustrating for our residents as they're trying to, you know, come to City Hall to do their City Hall business. But yet we are not able to actually provide that. But we will be up and running soon. Um, again, my team is working around the clock to ensure that there is smooth progression towards making sure that we are out of this ransomware and how and I'm already looking into the different steps that should have been taken previously under a different uh, previous administrations that we will be investing in our IT department to ensure that this never happens again. You know, um, I think that we fell short as a city previously in previous uh, administrations that uh, we didn't invest, right? We the, There was not the investments into the city uh, IT department that should have been there to prevent this from happening, even though we knew that this was uh, a concern in the, you know, in the past. And so because previous administrations didn't do that work, this administration will be making sure that we make those investments. And it would hardly be a talk about the Bay Area without talking about housing. I know that you have experience with uh, the unhoused, basically yourself, with your own experiences, but also just in terms of population growth, cities like Oakland have not been building enough housing to, uh, to keep up with the growth. How, how are you supposed to address this? Why has it been so hard to build housing at a rate that will be able to help people who are moving here? And what do you think you're going to be able to do that's different that other city leaders hadn't done? 
Absolutely. You know, the first and foremost, right, it's all about the resources and lack of resources. Here in this, uh, in California, we used to have what we call redevelopment funds, right? These are public dollars that would go back to cities so they can help with matching funds for to build deeply affordable and affordable housing. And because uh, that has been taken away, uh, we haven't been able to have the resources to do the matching funds. And so under this administration, we're going to be very intentional in regards to how do we create those matching funds. And so uh, as a council member here in the city of Oakland previously, I worked towards, I was a champion of moving forward in enhanced infrastructure financing district, which is tax increments. And so that's something that we're going to move forward with as well as on top of that, looking to see how we can work with the state and federal government to get those matching funds so that it can pencil out for developers to develop the deeply affordable, the affordable, the workforce housing and the teacher housing as well too here in the city of Oakland. And that, I, you know, I've set a very ambitious goal of making sure that we reach our RENA numbers, which is about 27,000. Um, I wanna go beyond that 27,000. And so I'm working already right now with many of our faith-based leaders as well too. They have a lot of property they would like to develop and make sure that they're affordable because again, Affordability also means keeping Oaklanders here in the city of Oakland, and that's exactly what we want to do. So that is what we're pushing. And I'd like to take us to immigration. I mean, do you sense that the country is taking a turn against immigration? There are some polls, Gallup polls, that show that the share of Americans who want less immigration has spiked. I mean, what do you attribute this to and how are elected leaders like yourselves supposed to respond? You know, I think that in regards to immigration, there's always, um, and it's always been historically, this heartburn of, you know, how many, um, you know, immigrants can we take on? Even with my parents when they arrived here, right? That's why the Hmong people were just spread across the, the whole nation and not just that, but to other countries as well. And you create, you know, disconnect within families themselves. And that's very hurtful. Um, you know, the majority of my family live in France because that's where they were pushed off to. And at the end of the day, it's about humanity. It's about humanity. It's about making sure that we do strike that very balanced approach where everyone must come on board. All leaders must have that conversation about how do we first put forth the humanity aspect of it. These are human beings who are looking not for a free handout, but because their life depends on it. And for me, it's always about humanity first. And so, you know, even though those numbers that you recited look like there's an uptick in regards to the anti-immigration movement, I do believe that it is our melting pot that makes us so strong so so strong and we have to you know um we have to make sure that we think outside of the box and come up with the different answers around how we work through immigration and with other countries as well too and so that's a larger conversation uh to be had but we must have that serious conversation because at the end of the day we are talking about real lives and um the humanity of what that means when we close our doors to those who are seeking asylum and I'd like to go back to the topic of anti-Asian violence and racism. You know, we've seen more people reporting, I mean, one in three of Asian Americans have been told to go back to their country. But at the same time, you know, a majority of Americans cannot 
name a prominent Asian American. So what do you make of this, you know, this idea that there is sort of this increase in racism, but at the same time, there is this lack of perceived power um, with them being left out of the national conversation? I mean, what's the relationship between those two points and kind of what are the solutions to that? Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's it's the otherness, right? Growing up, you know, it's the otherness of, well, you're not at the very bottom rung, but you're not at the top, but you we feel like you're in the middle. And, you know, we're invisible a lot of the time when the conversations are literally black and white, um, you know, and, and that, you know, and, and that drives that narrative around the, it being invisible, being API and invisible in the country. However, I do believe that there are that's why it goes back to, you know, making sure that we have ethnic studies in all of our programming in schools and what have you. And not just that, but yes, we don't have a lot of APIs as uh, in our C-suites, you know, as CEOs or what have you. We don't have a lot of APIs in our leadership branch at the top of the rung. But I do believe that that is shifting now. I do believe that is shifting now because, you know, as leaders, we always build our our bench as well too. And for me, I'm a huge a huge advocate of lifting while you climb. And so for me, that is something that I want to do. I'm more, um, you know, I'm focused on API community, but I'm also focused on the most marginalized communities too. I believe that leaders, strong leaders are developed through live life experiences. So I'm looking at the working class communities as we go through, uh, you know, the different changes and who leads our different cities, who leads at the state level, at the federal level, and not just that, but in the private sector as well. And I do believe that we have to come together to call out any um, disparities that we see when it comes to, you know, having different people who look differently in all of our sectors, whether it be public or private and uh, including uh, for women too. We're seeing now in California that we've seen um, many women be elected at the statewide level. However, that's a first, but it's going to going to continue. And um, in, in, in regards to this conversation about our API community and the strength that it brings, I believe that we also have to discuss the breakdown of what the API community is under this huge umbrella of API, right? I, as a Southeast Asian woman, I go through struggles that are a lot different than my um, East Asian uh, brothers and sisters or South Asian brothers and sisters. And so we have a lot of healing that we must do within our own API communities, too, to really see what it is that is our common factor that we can all fight for together collectively. Because in the API community, I don't believe that we actually have that collectiveness quite yet either. And so if we don't have that within our own API community, um, it would be very difficult for us to go out and fight for a voice. Well, thank you so much for this wide ranging and important conversation. Really appreciate your time here, Mayor Tao. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It was such a great time. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.